Hey guys, tonight we're going to be reading from The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. Be back in a minute. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, sorry for the late notice on this. I it's one of those uh, Murphy's days that what was supposed to be started, what was supposed to be a great day, turned into something altogether different for me. Uh, as you can see, I'm still I'm back. I'm, I'm back in glasses today. I had uh, a minor setback, but I should be back. I, I should be back with the contacts no later than uh, Friday or Saturday this week. So it is what it is. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Uh, wrong button. Sorry, guys. There we go. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can help you. It might take us a while to get out there because California is this huge state, but we will get out to you within two to three days. In the, in the, in the cases where we can't get out to you right away, we do have uh, mediums on staff who can phone you. And talk to you about what may or not, may not be going on in your particular situation. And if, it, and if it is paranormal, they can settle that energy down until we get out there. Okay. Well, okay. that being said, again, I apologize for the short notice on this. I gave you guys like two hours notice today. Hang on. But, um, yeah, just a minor setback. As you can tell, I'm feeling better. I'm not coughing as much. I might cough a little bit during the show, but not like... It was. It's, ta <coughs> it's, dry. it's tapering off more and more, so hopefully it keeps doing that. Uh, if you're watching from Facebook, and a lot of you are, and you you like what you hear tonight, please be sure to uh, follow if you haven't done so already. And show me some love and give me some thumbs up and some happy faces and things like that. Because what that does is that Facebook sees that and puts it, puts it out to algorithm. It relays the show out to more people. Okay, same thing over at YouTube. Uh, you know, there's eight over more. There's more than 800 videos sitting over at YouTube, and if if you like them and comment in the chat room and all that good stuff, then YouTube will send us out the same way out, out to more people. So uh, help us out a little bit. And again, thumbs up, happy faces, and all that good stuff. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube page. We've got, like I said, more than 800 videos over there. Uh, this, uh, the majority are categorized, so you can go directly to cryptids or whatever you want to read about. And you can pick what, whatever guest you want to read. So, read, 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 listen to. Good God. All right. So, um, <coughs> please do that. That being said, uh, you can find California Haunts on, on Facebook. It's under California Haunts, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Radio, California Haunts Ghostly Events, the Sacramento Sears Psychic Team. Um, you can also find us on Instagram under Ghosty Gal. And you can find us over at TikTok under California Haunts. And you can find us on Twitter under Cal Haunts and Twitch under California Haunts. We also have a meetup site. 
And that would be the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup site. All right. I think I got everything. Uh, pretty much. We do have a Discord. And uh, I'll be getting that link set up for you guys for that. So we can do some really cool chats afterwards. And we also have a Patreon. California Haunts Radio Patreon. <clears throat> We're trying to get things organized for that this year. But anyway, uh, I'm glad you guys are here tonight. And I hope you enjoy the read. We're still reading from the, the Spirits of Christmas, the Dark Side of the Holidays. And I think we're just we're getting really close to finishing that book off. So once we get done with that, <coughs> I'm going to move on to uh, my, my my library from the 1900s, and we're going to look at some older ghost stories and and see how how things differ from you know what what people experience later on. Okay, uh, so I'm real excited about that. Uh, we do have some. We will have a couple events coming up for you guys. Uh, one will be a ghost hunt that you can go go ghost hunting with us on. The other, uh, I put my my paranormal team back together essentially, and that's going to be interesting. And and that that you know I'm going to have them train, and we're going to be doing live ghost hunts from uh, not so much the residentials, but uh, different uh, commercial places. And you can watch it, and you know, you can watch those live. So <coughs> we're starting to organize those. But uh, anyway. Welcome, and I'm going to be reading for about an hour from the book. And if we finish, if I if I finish the book during this hour, I do have another book ready to go from uh, the, from my online source, so we can get going with that one. But for the most part, we're going to try and uh, read from the spirits of Christmas, the dark side of the holidays. But an interesting book. Uh, we're at the part where we're talking more about December and the month of December, and I kind of noticed a pattern with December seventh. I mentioned that. <laughs> Thank you. I mentioned that during the last show about the uh, you know Pearl Harbor Day was December December seventh, but uh, there's a lot of things that that people go through on December seventh. Plus, they you see a lot of ghostly activity on that day. So maybe because of the high emotions that, and you know in the memory of, of what happened on that day, that's what brings out these you know the uh, paranormal activity. Maybe I'm not a, you know I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it just seems like there's kind of a pattern. So let's read on and see if we hit anything else uh, you know, that takes place on December 7th in here. Let me go ahead and open that up. And Michelle, if you're listening tonight, uh, I want to take you up on your offer. I would really appreciate it. So uh, contact me over, maybe over on Facebook or uh, shoot me an email at caesarsghost at yahoo.com. That's C-E-S-A-R-S-G-H-O-S-T at yahoo.com. And then we'll uh, see what we can do about that. Great offer. I really appreciate it. So up with my antiquated tablet. And I think if I put anything else on this tablet, the springs are going to go popping out. If it had springs, it would be like, bling. That would be the end of the tablet. Gotta love AT&T, right? So the days are starting to get longer here. Little by little every day now. As we start to look forward to spring, which is really cool. I mean, I said a lot of stuff I want to do in my yard, and that's going to be coming up soon here. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to see the, see the change because I don't like the cold. I don't mind the fall. I don't mind the Christmas season. But then January and February are cold. And then March kicks in, and things start to warm up, and that's when I like it. I don't, I don't like it too hot either. So Sacramento, where I live, <coughs> is kind of in the middle. And so I'll get the extreme heat and the extreme cold, but we also get this we also get this middle area where it's really nice in the spring and in the fall. 
But everything else, I hate it. I hate the rain. I hate the whole thing. I'm not a rain lover. Okay. Let me get this in, and we should be almost done with this book. It may be today. I don't know. We're going to find out. <coughs> Excuse me. But you'll notice I'm not coughing as much. But I was really disappointed with the eye thing today. I really was. I I, can't, I looked at the doctor and I said, when, 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 when can I get the contacts back in? She was real good about it, real patient with me. It's frustrating. Okay, we're going to talk. All right, so we are reading for an hour. It's 7.38 p.m. Um, St. Mary's Church. The town of Crompton, Rhode Island. The town of Crompton, Rhode Island, now part of West Warwick, began in 1807 when a cotton mill was built on the, on, uh, on the Patoxic River. The town thrived with all the success of the mill. In the 1840s, the potato famine struck. What the heck? Yeah, okay. In the 1840s, that's because it just shifted gears on me. <coughs> the potato famine struck Ireland, and Irish immigrants scaled textile trades, immigrated to America. Many of them were drawn to the employment offered by the mill at Crompton. Unfortunately, the area had originally been settled by English Protestants. The Irish Catholics who moved to the area, a generation, thank you, a generation, later, found a firmly entrenched intolerance. The closest Catholic church was in Providence, which was a good 10 miles from Crompton. Few of the mill workers could afford wagons and a 10-mile walk every Sunday, and they soon became onerous. I'm sorry, and the walk became onerous. The Irish were desperate to build a Catholic church of their own in town, but the Protestants refused to sell them the land on which to build. The Irish Catholics finally found friends in Paul and Mary Doran. The Dorans bought a one-acre lock that turned around and deeded it to the Roman Catholic Bishop of Hartford. In 1854, the ground was broken for the construction of a church. Mary Doran died young. In fact, she died soon after work was begun on the church. There were whispered rumors that her death was the result of a retaliatory curse flung by the enraged Protestants. <coughs> wow. Figures when I start reading, it's going to do this. But whether Mary Doran's death had a supernatural aspect or not, it seems pretty clear that she is still very much a part of the church she helped to found. The small church holds an air of eerie mystery. Many members of the congregation, especially children, feel uneasy within its walls. Even today, some parishioners refuse to go into the church alone at night. Friar Edmund H. Fitzgerald, who was pastor of St. Mary's from 1984 to 1992, readily admits that he believes the church is haunted by the spirit of Mary Doran. He has been alone in the church countless times, and many times he would hear footsteps on the hard cedar floor. The footsteps would come up right behind him, but when he turned around, there was no one to be seen. Sometimes the church organ's majestic tones would ring out, even when the instrument was closed, locked, and covered with its cloth. As unnerving as these episodes may have been, though, Friar Fitzgerald says he never felt uncomfortable in the church or frightened of the invisible presence. Friar Fitzgerald experienced a very special aspect of a haunting one Christmas Eve in 1989 or 1990. He offered the Mass of the Christ Child that afternoon. By 5 p.m., the last of his parishioners had left, and Friar Fitzgerald was, lock was locking the church to leave, himself, to leave himself. 
Suddenly the tower bell began to ring on its own, peeling out over the church grounds. Friar Fitzgerald immediately went back into the church to investigate. Quote, the bell rope was moving up and down all by itself, but there was nobody in the church, he wrote later. That bell can only ring from someone pulling the rope. Even recent hurricanes did not cause the bell to ring in this way. Okay. But Friar Fitzgerald wasn't alarmed by the spectral bell ringer. What better time for it to ring, he said, than to celebrate the birth of the Christ child. All right. Next one is The Lady in the Pantry. On Christmas Eve in 1885, a canon living in Cons Half, Ireland, was relaxing at home in the rectory when his cook came into the room. Nervously, she pointed out that there was a strange noise going on in the kitchen. It sounded to her like the noise of a heavy wagon rolling past a rickety house. The canon had no idea what, what to make of this, but his cook was obviously alarmed. So he called another servant, and the three of them, canon, cook, and manservant, went down the kitchen, which was in the basement. By the time they got to the kitchen, the house was vibrating as if in the grip of an earthquake. But none of the furniture or dishes were being jostled. They were all perfectly still. The two servants were on either side of the cannon, each holding onto an arm, terrified at the eerie disturbance. Suddenly, the vibration stopped. But beyond the closed pantry door, the three of them could hear a tremendous racket. It sounded like someone was throwing every china plate, bowl, and glass onto the flagstone floor. Crash after crash came from behind the locked door. While the servants clung to the cannon for dear life, the door was locked, but the key was in the lock, and the cannon decided to open the door and investigate. He reached for the door, but before he put his hand on the key, the locked door of the pantry swung wide open. A tall woman glided out of the pantry. She was wearing a loose white dress with a short black cape around her shoulders. The cannon was paralyzed with fright and his two servants were holding onto his arm so tightly in their own fear that days later the cannon had bruises from the panicky grip of their fingers. The cannon rushed away from the servants to follow the ghost, who had moved across the kitchen to the stairs. When the ghost reached the bottom of the stairs, it vanished, and the cannon's two small boys in their bedroom, three stories above, started screaming. The three thundered up the stairs in the boys' bedroom. The boys were shaking, terrified at the ghostly intrusion. The older boy, who was ten, told his father that he had been lying awake in his bed waiting for Santa Claus. But instead of the jolly old elf, a strange lady glided into the room and then went back out, and she hadn't left any toys. The canon and his servants searched the rectory from top to bottom, but they found no trace of the lady in white. And when the cook opened the pantry door, which was still locked, she found no broken china and nothing was disturbed. Mrs. Eustace returns. The dead must leave us for a while, it's true. And sometimes our grief at losing them can feel overwhelming. But if we are lucky, our loved ones will find a way to let us know they still care for us, even beyond death. Dr. Eustace's wife died early on Christmas Day in 1932. The widower was devastated by his loss, but he believed that his wife's spirit lived on and that they would someday be re reunited. But as the bleak days and weeks Without her war on, Dr. Eustace drew his grief around him and resigned himself to her loss. After About seven weeks after his wife's death, Dr. Eustace was taking an evening stroll in his garden. Suddenly he stopped in his tracks. There, in the fading light of the setting sun, stood his beloved wife. 
Dr. Eustace Eustace. Dr. Eustace later wrote about the experience. She stood looking straight at me, as though she had been expecting me. Her face and figure were as distant and as clear-cut as in life. She gazed intently at me. Translated into words, her expression would have been well rendered by, How stupid of you! Why so foolish? I believe that I smiled and that my face reflected my joy. But the surprises were not yet over for Dr. Eustace. His wife's friend, Mrs. Welch, came by to offer her condolences. During their conversation, Mrs. Welch claimed to have seen Mrs. Eustace on Christmas Eve, the night before her friend had died. Mrs. Welch had attended the midnight service at the convent of Port Clares. She had, got, she had gotten to the church at five minutes before midnight, and she said Mrs. Eustace had been at the church too. Mrs. Eustace had greeted her friend and taken her by the arm, helping her to her seat with a smile. When Mrs. Welch had learned the next day of her friend's passing, she realized that, of course, it hadn't really been Mrs. Eustace at the church, but that her friend's spirit had been the one to help her to her seat. As Mrs. Welch spoke of her experience, Dr. Eustace recalled something else about that Christmas Eve. As he stood by his wife's bedside, he had noted that she lost consciousness at 11.55 p.m. The exact time her spirit was guiding Mrs. Welch to her seat at the church. The Phantoms of the Mamie are mine. <coughs> the winter of 1894 was a very bad time to work at the Mamie are mine on Raven Hill at uh, Cripple Creek, Colorado. Three men had already died at the mine over the, that year. In the darkness, any misstep had the potential to kill. One miner had been killed in an unexplained blast. Another miner had the bad luck to be standing under the bucket used to transport workers to the surface when the new cable broke. The falling bucket smashed the miner into an unrecognizable mass. Outside the mine, things were no less dire. A man named Garson, who ran the mine's boarding house, came down with mountain fever. Nine days later, he was dead. On November 15, 1894, Ed Blake was appointed manager of the boarding house. On Thanksgiving night, Blake was working at the top of the mine, along with a foreman named Fatty Root and two other men. They were all working near the hoist bucket. Suddenly, the signal bell rang three times, then once. This was the signal for man aboard, hoist away. The hoistman started the bucket on its upward climb, but before it got all the way to the top, the bell rang once, the signal for stop. Then it rang twice for lower away. <coughs> then the bell started ringing randomly, throwing out a bizarre contradictory mix of signals. This was all kinds of wrong. The bucket and windlass were the miner's lifeline to the surface. It was far too serious of a piece of equipment to waste the operator's time with silly games and mixed signals. Blake and Root decided to put a stop to the shenanigans. Ignoring the bell's signals, they hauled the bucket up and climbed in. They bumped and clanged their way to the bottom of the shaft. Grabbing lanterns, they both went all the way through the workings. There was no one down at the bottom. When the two men came back up, the hoist operator said that no one had come up before them either. A few nights later, a miner was working at the 375-foot level. He came up to the top ashen face. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> a man, he said, had just been killed. The miner said he had been placing charges for blasting. As he worked, someone had walked right past him straight into the middle of the blast zone. 
He had yelled at the man to get out, but whoever it was had ignored him. Then the charges detonated. As soon as the smoke from the blast had cleared, the foreman sent workers down to investigate. When they got down to 375 feet, they were met by a horrifying sight. A man stood in the lantern light, blood streaming from several ugly gashes on his head. One of his arms had been blown off. He stood with it slung smartly over his, over his other shoulder like a rifle. The men were appalled at the sight of the mutilated miner, but they were astounded he was still alive. They yelled at the man, but he ignored them. Perhaps, and quite rightly, he was in shock. One of the rescue parties stepped forward to take the miner's good arm, and his hand went right through the injured miner. The shift boss grabbed the drill and poked at the man, and the drill swished through the specter as though the man was made of smoke, not flesh and blood. The ghost brushed past the men, headed for the buckets, and rode up to the top. The rescue party waited until their racing hearts had calmed down, then they too rode the bucket up to the surface. The hoist operator at the surface swore he hadn't pulled the bucket up but once for them. The hauntings continued. On Christmas Eve, Blake, Root, and two other workers were once again at the top level of the mine near the bucket. The bell sounded three times, then once. Who's down there? Root, the foreman, asked. There isn't anyone down there, the hoist operator said. But he couldn't just ignore the signal. Better safe than sorry, after all. He started up the hoist. What happened next, according to E.D. Blake, was recorded in a WPA writer's program report dated 1936-1942. <coughs> all three of us started back, and the blood curdled in our veins. I hope to be spared ever of seeing such a sight again. Garson got out of the bucket first. Garson, with his yellow, pinched face and staring eyes, just as he looked the night I saw him die of mountain fever. <coughs> then came the one-armed man, with the blood spattered over his features and the shattered stump of an arm. Between them, they lifted out the body of a poor fellow, lashed to a plank, and laid it on the platform. Then the one-armed man reached down on the bucket and brought out his arm. As he rose from the stooping posture, he looked toward us, the most ghastly object I ever beheld, his face old cuts, his clothing torn to shreds. He laid the arm on top of the body that was lashed to the plank, and the two raised the whole horrible thing to their shoulders and walked out into the night. For a minute, no one spoke. And then we all rushed to the door, and as true as I live, we saw the two dead men, ghosts or whatever they were, walk over the edge of the dump and disappear in the darkness. Excuse me. <coughs> But the Mamiar wasn't finished claiming his victims. That night the mine flooded. The next day, Christmas Day, the miners had to work on emptying it, one hoist bucket at a time. Around midnight, Fatty Root relieved the bucket dumper and was working the hoist. The men on that shift had brought up a dozen buckets of water, and the thirteenth was nearing the top, when the winding spool slipped out, slipped out of its frame, and the cable whipped out in great deal of loops. One of the cable loops caught Root around the neck. <coughs> and lopped his head right off. Quick as thought and as cleanly as guillotine. Many of the mines in the American West were worked by Welsh, Irish, and Cornish immigrants. Men descended from miners themselves. Men who brought with them the generations worth of expertise in working underground. These immigrants also brought with them a rich tradition of folklore, tailored to, the, to their specific calling of working deep under the earth. The Tommyknockers were a fairy race who lived underground. <coughs> Sometimes these pixies were helpful, 
locating miners' lost tools, leading them safely out of the tangle of mine shafts, or warning them of impending cave-ins. But sometimes, the Tommy knockers could be maliciously manipulative. They would, <coughs> excuse me, they would steal tools and lunches. They would tap a miner on the shoulder and laugh at his confusion. And sometimes, their tricks were deadly. The Tommy knockers would toy with the with senses done dull in unrelenting darkness. They would pretend to be a lost child crying for help, luring miners deep into an unsure shaft, leading them in, on, on the, into a very real danger of a cave-in. The miners claimed they could tell when the Tommy knockers were around. They spoke of feeling of being watched, but if a miner whipped around and catch the culprit, all he would see was a skittering shadow, a shadow that would disappear right into a rocky wall. The miners also spoke of hearing voices, unintelligible whisperings, that would melt away the maddeningly that would melt away maddeningly into the dark. When they did catch glimpses of their tormentors, it was a horrifying sight. The evil imps were said to be two to three feet high, thin and wiry, with eyes that glowed a sullen red in the black shadows of the mine shafts. The Mamiar mine closed sh shortly after that Christmas Day tragedy of 1894. There is no record of that particular mine, or as the, mine, as the mining records of the State Bureau of Mines for Colorado only began in 1895. But perhaps, in abandoned mines somewhere in the rocky wilderness of Cripple Creek, Tommyknockers still chatter in the darkness, and dead miners still travel up and down in the derelict hoist, still toiling in the mines decades after the accidents that stole their lives. I can vouch for Tom, Tommy Knockers. I, uh, we've done a lot of investigating up in the California gold country, you know, with all the gold mines and silver mines up there. And there's a lot of reports from people that live in the area that, that they see these little men in their houses and things like that go on. So they're definitely still still there. The whole legend of the Tommy Knockers continues. Plus, you know, some of those mines are still active and some aren't. So, you know, they, people will walk by a mine shaft, you know, an open mine shaft or the side of a hill, you know, that, that's a shaft going in, and they hear knocks and stuff inside, you know, different noises and stuff, voices. The Wreck of the General Arnold. The year was 1778. The young country of America had declared its independence from Britain just two years before. King George III wasn't about to let his colonies go without a fight. The American militia needed all the help it could get. In December, the Brigantine General Arnold set sail from Boston. She carried 20 guns with a crew of 106 to man them. The brig was a privateer, meaning that she was privately owned and outfitted as a warship by her owner. Ships like this were issued, were issued letters of, of, uh, of marquee by the Providence of Massachusetts, allowing them to legally chase down British ships and plunder them. With these letters of marquee, I think it's M-A-R-Q-U-E, the ships and their crew rode the fine line between legitimate raiding and the time of war and outright piracy. By Christmas Day, the ship had gotten as far as Gurnet Point outside Plymouth Bay. The captain, James McGee, anchored there and signaled for a pilot to take the ship safely into harbor. But a storm was brewing up fast, and no sane pilot would risk his life in such nasty weather. Without a local mariner to guide the brigantine, <coughs> Into the harbor, Captain McGee would have to take his chances navigating the unfamiliar shoals on his own. McGee decided to ride, hang on, decided to ride out the storm in Cape Cod Bay for the night and hope a pilot made his way out to the brig the next morning. That turned out to be a cataclysm 
that turned out to be a bad decision. Cataclysmically, God, cataclysmically bad decision. What is it with me in these words? The storm grew worse during the night. <coughs> General Arnold, already dragging anchor, went around on white flats in Plymouth Bay. The ship was still a mile off, a Plymouth shore, and being forced further into the sand. Then the tide went out, leaving the ship stranded and listing in very shallow water. <coughs> As the storm that had been menacing the ship turned into a deadly nor'easter. <coughs> I apologize for the coughing. I haven't done this in a couple days. For three days, wind and snow pummeled the General Arnold. With temperatures plummeting, the snow froze to the sails and lines of the ship. Captain McGee ordered the men to chop the mast down to lighten the ship, in hopes of floating her off the sandbar. His plan didn't work. Also, the men, once they had axes in hand, used them to break into the ship's cask and rum. The men went below decks to wait out the fury of the storm, but under the force of the pounding waves, the seams split and frigid water poured into the ship. The men were forced back up onto the deck into the wind and snow. Then the tide came back in, waves washed over the deck, adding to the misery of the already freezing crew. <coughs> there was one small boat on board. Three of the men decided to take the yelp and rowed, and, and, and rowed ashore for help. They risked being battered to pieces by the pounding waves, but they decided it was worth a try. It's unclear whether they came up with this plan on their own or if they had Captain McGee's permission to make a run for it. The men piled into the yell and were able to row to a frozen part of the bay where they walked across the ice to a scooter that had gotten trapped. The three men who made their escape never did come back. Around sunset on Saturday, December 26th, the tide went out again. The brig was no longer battered by the pounding waves, but during the night, the wind shifted to the northeast, bringing bitterly cold temperatures. Soon enough, the tide came back in with accompanying waves. Unable to seek shelter below decks, the men were exposed to the cold on deck. Sailors clinging to the ropes of the rigging to avoid being washed overboard froze to death where they were. By the next morning, 30 of the men were dead. The survivors stacked the frozen bodies to provide a windbreak as the storm's fury lashed the decks. As the snow continued to fall thick and fast, the waves battered the decks. The stacked corpses froze into a solid wall of flesh and wet clothing. By Sunday, December 27th, the townspeople of Plymouth realized the brig was stranded on white flats. <coughs> wow. They tried time and time again to row out to the, found, to, to the founder's ship, but the storm was still too strong, and Plymouth Bay was a churning mass of ice flows. The crew was forced to wait for another agonizing night. The morning of December 28th brought hope. The people of Plymouth Desperate to provide some help to the suffering crew of the ship, had worked through the night piling ice flows together to form an enormous bridge out to the sandbar. After three days of bitter cold and howling winds, the storm broke. The people of Plymouth cautiously ventured out onto the white flat. The storm had brought such vicious cold that the salt water in the harbor was frozen. The townspeople, bundled against the cold, walked over to the bridge of ice to see if anyone was still alive aboard the stricken ship. Seventy men were dead. <coughs> Excuse me. The townspeople dragged sleds over the ice bridge to rescue the survivors. 
33 survivors were led, shivering to warmth and safety on shore. Of those men, nine died later. Then, the gruesome task of recovering the frozen bodies began. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Guess I did too much today. Maybe that's the deal. Quote, here was presented a scene unutterably un- 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 awful and distressing, wrote a witness. It is scarcely possible for the human mind to conceive of a more appalling spectacle. The ship was sunk 10 feet in the sand. The waves had been for about 30, 36 hours sweeping the main deck. 70 dead bodies frozen into unimaginable postures were strewed over the deck. The townspeople of Plymouth decided to lay the bodies in the courthouse, as it was one of the largest buildings in town, with plenty of floor space. There was, however, one horrifying plan in the slaw. This, this is one horrifying flaw in this plan. The bodies of the sailors that had been stacked to provide a grisly windbreak to the General Arnold's deck were now frozen into a solid chunk, far too big to fit through the courthouse door. No one wanted to hack the frozen meat apart, so the mass of bodies was put in a town brook to thaw. The town's water supply was a fresh water spring that bubbled up in a, in a constant stream, so it was slow to freeze. The fresh water helped to thaw the bodies enough that they could be pried apart. The bodies were arranged in rows on the courthouse floor. While thawing the bodies, the rescuers noticed something odd about the corpse of Barnabas Downs, the twelve-year-old cabin boy. A fresh tear streamed. A fresh tear seemed to leak from his open eye. Suddenly, the boy blinked. He was still alive, although paralyzed with hypothermia. Downs was saved, although he lost both of his feet to frostbite. He lived into his fifties and wrote and then wrote a memoir of his experiences. In the book, he wrote that as bad as losing his feet was, the pain of getting thawed out was many, many times worse. In the end, several of the bodies were claimed by relatives, but many of the sailors had simply signed on to the ship in Boston, and Captain McGee hadn't had the time to add them to the ship's log. They remained unknown, and no one came to claim their bodies. After a couple of weeks, the townspeople realized that even in the cold weather, the corpses had to be buried, and soon. Around 60 unclaimed bodies were buried in a 10-by-20-foot in, in pit on Burial Hill. The pit, probably a rubbish dump that had been dug before the ground froze, was pressed into service as a mass grave. Captain James McGee lived on and had a successful career as a merchant captain. He died in 1801, and at his request, his body was buried in the mass grave that held the bodies of so many of his comrades. This tragedy left a stain on the courthouse in Plymouth, both figuratively and literally. It's said that the floorboards were so saturated with blood and body fluids that they had to be taken up and turned over. And the psychic residue has led to active hauntings that continue even today. Janice Williams, leader of the Dead of Night Lantern Tours in Plymouth, tells the story of the wreck of the General Arnold with ghoulish relish. Of course, that's the way she tells all the stories on her tour. She describes the sound you might hear if you stand in the ladies' restroom, which is located in the basement of the courthouse. It's a shuffling, sliding sound, the sound of freshly thawed bodies being dragged across the courthouse floor and arranged in row after row. She will show you the picture of her phone on her phone that shows three young cabin boys peering out of one of the courthouse windows and another picture of one of the dead sailors. These pictures are also posted on the Dead of Night Tours website, www.deadofnightghosttours.com. 
and Janice will warn you with glee that if you are a woman visiting the courthouse museum, you might feel a friendly arm slide around your waist in an affectionate hug, but it's not anyone you know. When you turn around to smile at your companion, there's no one there, just the spirit of a lonely sailor looking for warmth and maybe a smile from a pretty girl. Up in flames. Let me check something really fast, you guys. Okay. Up in flames. Every family has their own way of celebrating the holidays. Some gather with friends for a big meal on Christmas Day. Some celebrations are a little smaller, more laid back. For the Roonies, a couple in their 70s living in Seneca, Illinois, Christmas Eve 1885 was a time to sit back and relax with a drink or three. Patrick and Matilda Rooney, both 72 years old, owned a small but prosperous farm just north of Seneca, about 75 miles southwest of Chicago. Joining them for the festivities was John Larson, their hired hand. Neither Patrick nor Matilda were shy about lifting a glass. Patrick kept his little brown jug of whiskey topped off once, once a week. Handily, his son-in-law, Michael Murphy, who lived nearby, owned, owned a saloon and was happy to keep his father-in-law in booze. That night, Larson came in from doing his chores. Patrick and Matilda were already enjoying a cup of Christmas cheer. Larson had two glasses of whiskey, then went off to his bedroom, which was on the second floor of the house, just above the kitchen. He had chores to do in the morning, but the Roonies decided to stay up for a while longer. Larson woke up in the middle of the night. His eyes itched, his throat was scratchy and raw, and he had a hard time catching his breath. He thought miserably that he might be coming down with a cold. Before he could get up to get a drink of water to soothe his parched throat, he drifted back to sleep. <coughs> the next morning, Larson got up and went downstairs to start in on his chores. He went to Mr. Rooney's room to wake him. He found Patrick Rooney unresponsive in his bedroom. Larson, concerned that Rooney had passed out, Rooney had passed out after a night of drinking, tried to wake Rooney to help him out to his bed. But after shaking Rooney a few times, Larson realized that the old man was dead. Larson hurried to Matilda Rooney's room, but his boss's wife was nowhere to be found. Larson began to work out what had happened. <coughs> <coughs> he figured that maybe the Rooney's had had a fight. Matilda had killed Patrick and then run away. Larson walked to the Murphy home and told the family of his theory. Michael Murphy came back with Larson to the Rooney home to investigate further. The two men searched the whole house, trying to find any clue as to where Matilda might have gone. As they passed Larson's bedroom, Larson glanced in through the open door and noticed something that had escaped his attention in his grogginess first waking up. His pillows were black. Larson picked one up and looked closely. The pillowcases were covered with greasy black soot. Larson hoofs, thoughtfully. This was probably why he had woken up coughing and short of breath in the middle of the night. The two men searched for Mrs. Rooney ended in the kitchen. The stove, the table, the chairs were all covered in the same black soot. And in the center of the room, there was a hole in the floor, charred around the edges, several feet Several feet wide. Sickened. Larson and Murphy made their way to the edge of the hole and looked down. On the cellar floor beneath the kitchen, one floor below, lay all that was left of Matilda Rooney. Part of her spine, 
her skull, one hip bone, and a pile of white ashes. <coughs> her left foot was still in the kitchen, standing at the edge of the hole in the floor. Her leg had burned through at the ankle, and when her body had fallen through the floor, the charred bone had snapped. Her foot, which with the shoe still on it, had toppled upright onto the kitchen floor. It was the only part of Mrs. Rooney that wasn't incinerated. Besides being covered in soot, like the glass chimney of a smoking oil lamp, the only damage to the kitchen was that the edge of the tablecloth had been scorched. Well, that of the charred, charred gaping hole in the middle of the floor. The LaSalle County Coroner, Dr. Floyd Clinton, had only one body to autopsy. He determined that Patrick Rooney had died of smoke inhalation. John Larson, since he slept with his bedroom door closed, had been lucky to escape the same fate. As for Matilda Rooney, the coroner just, just scraped the ash up from the, from the cellar floor, along with the bone fragments. He later reported that it would have taken a fire burning at over 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit to incinerate Matilda's 160-pound body so completely. He was at a loss, however, to explain such an intense fire <coughs> excuse me, that could burn only her body and not the rest of the kitchen of the house. John Larson was briefly considered a suspect in the deaths of Patrick and Matilda Rooney. But a couple of months later, he was exonerated on the strength of his character. Matilda Rooney's death is one of the best-known cases of spontaneous human combustion. But it is by no means the only one. There had been over 200 reports of people mysteriously bursting into flames. One of the earliest, recorded in Paris in 1673, involved a woman who caught fire and exploded on the street. Witnesses said she had been drinking, which seems to fit the pattern of alcohol involvement in cases of SHC. Victims are also usually heavyset, and they're often female. Strangest of all, nearly all the reported cases of SHC have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere, many of them during the winter months. Sadly, the Rooney's reputation suffered after the grisly ends. The Ottawa Republican Times ran their story on December 31, 1885, with the judgment on headline tragic end of an old couple whose weakness was the cause of their sad demise. Even some of their descendants believed that the deaths were the result of divine retribution for the Rooney's excessive drinking on Christmas Eve. All right. A little sip of water. Dehydrated today. Okay. All right. My, I mean, this cold is just, it's a beast. The Battle of Edge Hill. <coughs> the English Civil War was a vicious contest between the Roundheads, led by Oliver Cromwell, and the Royalists, who backed King Charles I. The first and bloodiest battle of the war was fought on a field called Edge Hill on October 23, 1642. The battlefield of Edge Hill was just seven miles outside of the English town of Banbury. It was here that two armies, each 20,000 strong, fought bitterly for hours, leaving 4,000 soldiers dead on the field. Neither side actually won the battle, although both sides claimed victory. The result of the battle was simply the Roundheads were not able to stop the Royalists on their march towards London. The battle was over, but 4,000 men still wanted to have their say. Two months after the event, on Saturday morning, Christmas Eve, 1642, the armies met again to continue the battle, but these were not the soldiers of Charles I. 
and Cromwell. These were phantom armies, drums beating, muskets firing, horses neighing, and cannons roaring, all in the skies of the battlefield. Several shepherds and other country folk were, were the first to witness this ghostly reenactment. They stood rooted to the spot in terror for three hours, while the phantom battle raged above them. When the armies vanished, the witnesses raced to the nearby town of, 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 of Kinnaton to find William Wood, the magistrate. <coughs> 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 oh, okay. And the minister Samuel Marshall, just to be on the safe side. <coughs> Excuse me. Wood and Marshall listened to the incredible story, but they wanted to see this phenomenon for themselves. That night, the night of Christmas, the two men went to the Edge Hill battlefield, accompanied by the original witness, plus most of the townspeople. Half an hour after they got there, the spectral battle started up again, just as fiercely as the night before. The witnesses, all terrified at the uh, uh, of what was going on in the raging battle, scattered and rushed home and locked the doors behind them. The rest of the week was quiet, and the townspeople dared to think that the haunting was over. But the next Saturday night, the phantom army, armies fought for four hours. Sunday night brought them on again. The minister, Mr. Marshall, had to move out of town. The continuous battles were simply too much for him. Others left, too. But Wood, the magistrate, and most of the other townspeople stayed. Sure enough, the next weekend, there was another double feature. News of the repeating apparitions reached the ears of King Charles I. He was immediately immensely curious. After all, it was his army that was tearing it up in the skies over Edgehill. He sent six trusted men to, to Kennington to investigate the phenomena. The men listened to Wood and others tell, the amazing sights, tell of the amazing sights they'd seen. And that Saturday and Sunday nights, and those Saturday Sundays nights, they saw the vicious battle for themselves. Staring up at the sky, the men even recognized per, per, personal friends of theirs who had fallen during the actual battle in October. The six investigators returned to the king and testified under oath as to what they had seen. Within days of their report, the king ordered a pamphlet written up, containing all the eyewitness testimony of the recurring Battle of Edgehill. The phantom armies that fought so bitterly for so many nights gradually disappeared. But reports still came of the noises of the battle, of the pounding hooves, of the hard galloping horses, of phantom riders heard thundering across the deserted battlefield, of cannons still discharging their deadly loads. For centuries after the battle, long after Cromwell's victory, long after Charles I lost his head, the ghosts of the Edgehill still could not find rest. 50 Berkeley Square. Some houses just seem to exude an air of evil. They don't have to be crumbling stone castles with ghosts from centuries past. Some, like Borley Rectory in England, seem to be repositories of creeping horror with poltergeist activity off the charts for no known reason. Some, like the Let's Home in Amityville, were the scene of some ghastly crime in years past, the state of which still clings to the walls and permeates the air. And some houses are just plain creepy for no reason. A shut-in died in the house. A shut-in died in the house decades ago, or a mass murderer was was rumored to bury the bodies of his victims in the cellar floor. For whatever reason, real or imagined, people talk about certain houses in hushed tones, and kids cross the street to avoid walking past them on their way on their way to school. Fifty Berkeley Square is such a house. 
built <clears throat> built in the late 18th century. The home was a fashionable district of London. Was it a fashionable district of London? <clears throat> but there was always something unfashionably off about the house. Prime Minister George Canning, who lived in the house until his death in 1827, complained of hearing strange noises in the house. The hauntings really began, as far as anyone can tell, in the 1830s. Apparently, a maid went mad with fright when something suddenly appeared in her bedroom. One account published in a magazine of the day said that she was found standing in the middle of a room rigid as a corpse. As a corpse. Okay. With hideous, glaring eyes, unable to speak. <coughs> she was taken to St. George's Hospital in the insane asylum where she died the very next day. After this disturbing incident, the family who lived in the house refused to go into the maid's room. They said that when they touched the walls, they were found saturated with electric horror. <coughs> the house became plagued with poltergeist phenomena. All the standard issue creepiness of a haunted house, rattling chains, rapping noises, eerie blue lights that had drifted from room to room, and unearthly screams. Lord, Li Lord Littleton heard of the maid's haunted room and showed up at the house, asking to spend the night there. He armed himself with two blunderbusses loaded with buckshot and silver coins, easier to come by than silver bullets. Littleton came down the next morning, his cocky attitude shaken right out of him. He claimed that something horrible had come into the room and launched itself at him. He was able to fire one of the guns at it, and it disappeared. Littleton couldn't describe what it was he'd seen in that room. Another visitor, Sir Robert Warboyce, was deeply skeptical of the whole idea of a haunting. He demanded to be allowed to spend the night in the haunted room. He too was armed with a pistol, and he took a bell, and then he took a bell with him just in case he needed someone to help quickly. Sometime after midnight, the family was jolted awake by the violent ringing of the bell. They raced up to the maid's room, listening all the while for the shot of the pistol. It never came. <coughs> Excuse me. They burst into the room and found Sir Robert sprawled half on the bed. A pistol lay on the floor and fired. Sir Robert was dead, and he had not died peacefully. <coughs> I don't know why this, gets, this turns bad after, you know, because it's nighttime, I guess. His wide-open eyes stared unseeingly at some unspoken horror, and his lips were drawn back over his teeth in a feral glint of fear. Sir Robert Warboys read the coroner's report, read the coroner's report, had been frightened to death. In the 1850s, reports of the haunting began to circulate more, wild, more, more widely in the neighborhood. In 1859, a man named Myers bought the house in 50 Berkeley Square. The story goes that he had been jilted by his beautiful fiancée. He retreated to an attic room in the huge house and slowly went mad as the once gorgeous home fell into disrepair. He was rumored to walk the house at night, candle in hand, to light his dismal way, weeping and calling out his faithless fiancée's name. During the day, he shut himself up in his tiny attic room, only answering the door to a servant who brought him food and drink. In the 1870s and 1880s, long after Myers was gone, the house sat empty. The stories of fatal hauntings and, and a brooding homeowner worked their dark, their dark magic on the imaginations of many in the neighborhood. The neighbors spoke of ghostly phenomena disturbing the peace of Berkeley Square. <coughs> At number 50, windows were thrown open, bells ring stridently at all hours of the day, night, 
<coughs> Gosh. Stones and books were tossed outside, and the furniture was thrown around the house. The owners tried to rent out the vacant property, but nobody in the area wanted anything to do with the 50, with 50 Berkeley Square. The house sat empty until Christmas Eve of 1887. Two sailors from the frigate, HMS Penelope, were on shore leave, carousing their way through London. Edward Blunden and Robert Martin had drunk all their money and were stumbling through the streets in search of a warm place to sleep. It was starting to snow when they reached 50 Berkeley Square. Seeing the for rent sign on it, the sailors decided no harm would come of their spending the night there. They staggered their way up to the second floor bedroom. Martin soon fell asleep, but Blunden tossed and turned, too keyed up to sleep. Also, he kept hearing scratching and dragging footsteps in the hallway outside the room. At around two that morning, Robert Martin cannoned out of the front door of the house. Gibbering and hysterical with fright, he stared wildly around the square. He caught sight of a policeman walking his beat and raced over to him. Martin sta stammered out a nearly incoherent story about how he and Blunden had broken into the empty home to spend the night. They'd been attacked by something horrible, but Martin couldn't describe what it was. He could only gibber about some dark and shapeless thing with a gaping mouth. He begged the policeman to come back to the house with him. He had escaped, but he was afraid for Blunden. The front door at number 50 was open. The policeman cautiously went into the house with Martin, following fearfully behind him. They searched the house and found no monster. They found Blunden's shattered body impaled on the decorative iron railings of the basement steps. He had made it out of the house, right through the second floor window. Edward Blunden's neck had snapped in the fall. His face was frozen with a look of terror. The sight of that face followed the policeman in his dreams for the rest of his life. Pretty deep, pretty deep, pretty deep. Pacific see, Night, Night Hall is the next one. Pacific University, a liberal arts school in Forest Grove, Oregon, is home to an elegant building called Night Hall. The former private residence has painted a pleasant muted gray, and the white gingerbread trim gives a nod to its Victorian era beginnings. In the late 1940s, the house served as a woman's dormitory. In 1959, the music department moved into Night Hall. In the fall of 1974, a student, night watchman, had an unusual encounter in the building. As he went about his rounds, checking the building, you could hear a singer, a woman, still practicing in the third floor library. The watchman went up to the third floor to tell the singer it was time for her to leave. As he went further up the stairs to the second floor, then to the third floor, he began to feel a stirring sense of unease, for no good reason. As soon as he reached the third floor landing, the scene stopped abruptly. The watchman opened the door of the library. No one was there. The student, suspecting he was being pranked, searched the room for a hidden tape recorder. He found nothing. So assuming it hadn't been a prank, someone must actually have been singing <coughs> and it somehow slipped past him. He searched the entire house for the intruder. He searched the third floor. He searched the second floor. As he trotted down the staircase to the first floor, he saw his mysterious singer. A filmy bluish-white mist in the vague shape of a woman was standing in front of a professor's office. As the stunned watchman stared, 
The figure drifted away and disappeared. The student watchman didn't quit his job after that encounter, but he did get a large German shepherd to keep him company on his nightly rounds. One night, as the watchman was about to go into night hall, the dog started growling. The hackles on its back rose, and it whined and jumped up at the window, teeth snapping on air. But when the watchman went up to the front door, the dog flatly refused to go into the building. Night Hall just didn't get checked that night. In 1979, two reporters spent the night in the beautiful old building. They retreated to a smorgasbord of paranormal activity. They heard footsteps. They had the lights turned on on them. Turned out on them, I'm sorry. They heard long... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Jeez. They heard long rustling skirts brush past them. And they heard a woman's alto voice singing. Whoever this spirit was, she had a sense of humor. One of the reporters sat down at the piano and began to play, hoping to attract the spirit's attention. A female voice whispered in his ear, Oh, please stop. Not once, but twice. The reporters came back with some friends the next night. When one of the friends sat down to play the piano, everyone in the room heard a heavy, long-suffering sigh. The ghost of Night Hill is nicknamed Vera. On the strength of an Ouija board session held in 1969. A spirit said her name was Vera, Vera Herrick, daughter of John Herrick, and she had been a student at the university from 1883 to 1887. Interestingly, Reverend John Herrick was president of the Pacific University at that time. But when investigators checked school records, they discovered that Reverend Herrick did not have a daughter named Vera. The only Vera the researchers uncovered was Vera Carolyn Jackson who was a music student at the university from 1902 to 1904. This presents a problem with the timeline of the haunting. Night Hall didn't become the music building until 1959. There's also the fact that the first reports of a haunting in Night Hall date back to 1949, when it was still a woman's dorm, 10 years before the music department moved in. Whether the spirit is Vera Herrick or Vera Jackson or someone else entirely, the fact remains that Night Hall is most definitely haunted. In the early 1980s, Dr. Donald Schweda, a retired music professor, came to the building on Christmas Day. He wanted to record some music, and a home filled with family celebrating the holiday was not the place to do it. While Dr. Schweda was in the middle of recording, he heard footsteps coming down the corridor. Annoyed, the professor walked quietly to the door. He was not about to have someone speak and inadvertently ruin the tape. This was precisely what he had hoped to avoid by recording in the empty music building instead of his noisy house. Dr. Schweda eased the door open to warn whoever it was to keep quiet, but no one was there. Attacked in a hospital bed. Hey guys, this is my good buddy, Lon Strickler. There you go, buddy, who runs the blog Phantoms and Monsters, phantomandmonsters.com. Is no stranger to the supernatural. He has made it his mission to search the world for accounts of the strange, unusual, and just plain weird. Long goes looking for the paranormal on a daily basis, and sometimes the paranormal finds him. Long posted a story on his blog about an experience he had in January 2017. He was in the hospital waiting to have some tests run. Suddenly, as he lay in his bed, he was attacked by some sort of female spirit energy. The spirit wrapped her hands around Lon's throat and started to choke him. <coughs> he was able to fight the spirit off, 
but the experience stayed with him. When his nurse returned to the room, she acted. She asked, startled, where did you get those marks on your throat? Intrigued by the experience, Vaughn put out a call to the readers of his blog, asking people to write to him if they'd had similar encounters. A reader who asked to be identified only as JCG wrote in to tell of something that had happened to a friend of hers. JCG's friend lived in Santiago de Cortaro, Mexico. She worked in a local hospital as a nurse. At around 4 a.m. on December 24th, she went to the break room to catch a quick nap. She had just laid down on one of the cots and closed her eyes when she felt someone slap her knees. Thinking it was one of her co-workers trying to get her attention, she sat up. As soon as she sat up, a spirit wearing a hospital gown attacked her. The spirit grabbed the nurse by the throat, trying to strangle her. To strangle her. She tried to fight it off, but the spirit grabbed her flailing arm. Desperately, <coughs> the nurse started to cough. No, desperately, the nurse started to scream for help, but the ghostly pressure on her throat muted her cries. Finally, her co-worker heard the commotion and came to find out what was going on. When the other nurse rushed into the room, the spirit flew out the window. Neither of the two women ever saw its face. The second nurse never even saw the attacking spirit. But she did see the angry red bruises on her co-worker's neck. A game of billiards. Let's see, we've got how many minutes? Okay, we've got eight minutes to do this. In the fall of 1943, World War II was raging across Europe. Lieutenant Colonel O'Donovan, an English artillery officer, was given command of two field batteries and told to prepare his men an attack on the German army. The artillerymen were given quarters in various buildings on an estate in the Midlands. The officers stayed in the manor house. The estate was surrounded by acres of beautifully kept parkland, land that was soon chewed to bits of turf by the lobbing of artery shells in practice. Artillery shells. Artery shells. When Colonel O'Donovan arrived at the estate, the manor house was virtually deserted. The lord of the manor was off fighting the war, and his wife was living elsewhere. The only people left to care, behind to care for the estate in its brown house were two servants who had been employed with the family for many years. Like every good English manor house, the estate was home to a ghost. The butler told O'Donovan shortly after the officer's arrival that before the troops had been assigned to the estate, someone else had lived there for a brief time. On learning of the ghost, the man had moved out in a hurry. Colonel O'Donovan didn't chastise the butler, didn't chastise the butler for telling ghost stories. But he didn't believe him either. The colonel had more important things on his mind, like getting his men ready for battle. But he wanted the butler to think of him and his men as guests in the manor house, rather than intruders. He hired the butler, <coughs> gosh, to help him put together an officer's mess. The butler agreed that this would bring some, some lightness to the empty house. It was agreed the officers would gather for their main meal at 7.45 every evening. A couple of weeks later, Colonel O'Donovan was on his way down the hall where the officers met for supper. Glancing at a clock in the hallway, he realized it was only 6.45. He was an hour early. Making a mental note to check his watch for accuracy, he wondered how he was going to pass the time until supper. It was a chilly fall night, and there was a fireplace in the hall where the officers ate their evening meals. 
The thought of spending some time relaxing by the cheerful fire held a lot of appeal. But just as the colonel was about to head for the hall, he heard a sound that pleased him even more than the, cra the, the crackle of a cozy fire. It was the click of billiard balls, and it was coming from a nearby room, a room the colonel hadn't been in before. He opened the door and found a full-size billiard table in the center of a large room. Racks of cue sticks lined the walls. A youngish man in army dress blues was shooting balls on the table, just messing around, not seriously playing a game. His outfit reminded O'Donovan of a uniform worn by General Kitchener's soldiers in World War I. The colonel was briefly surprised the boy had been found fit for service, as his back was curved into a pronounced wid widow's hump. O'Donovan went over to the racks on the wall and selected a cue stick. Want a game, he asked. He was an avid player, and it had been too long since he had enjoyed a game of billiards. The young man nodded with a ready smile. O'Donovan racked up the balls, and the game began. The young man was a good player, as good as O'Donovan himself was, and soon the score stood at 98 to 98. 98, to 98. The colonel could hear the clump of army boots in the hallway, as he knew the other officers were coming in for the evening meal. The colonel took his final shot and scored two more points easily. He'd won the game. That's done it, he said. My game. The young man smiled again, accepting O'Donovan's zero victory. He put his cue stick back on the rack and walked out of the room through another door. O'Donovan shook his head a bit amused. He thoroughly enjoyed the game, but he found it odd that the young man had never uttered a single word. He joined his fellow officers in the dining room, but his mind kept strained to the billiard table and the strange young man. Halfway through the meal, O'Donovan decided to ask his men if they'd seen the kid in the dress blues. No one had. A nice, a nice enough lad with a hump. O'Donovan continued, I've just beaten him at billiards. Just then, O'Donovan noticed the stricken look on the butler's face. The man was standing frozen and pale in the act of serving dessert. You've seen Master Woolley, sir. The colonel pressed the butler to explain. Master Woolley was her ladyship's brother. He managed to join up with Kitchener's army back in 1915. But... When the officers discovered he was deformed, they discharged him. He came home to the manor at Christmas, 1916. He played a good game of billiards. Then he shot himself in the room where he loved to play. Wow. All right, that's it for today. And hopefully we'll continue on Sunday. Just in case, you know, it just depends how things go. As you guys know, and I've been telling you, um, I've been sick and... <coughs> oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. I've been sick, and with my glasses, I don't see as well as I do with my contacts. And so it's hard for me to like write letters and stuff to get guests. So I've kind of taken a little time off from that. But tonight I'll be working on getting us some guests for next week. But in between, Nancy Matz is going to help me out. You know, we'll, I'll call in some favors from some friends of mine for guests this week. But I'll be reading in between. So we can get through this book and then back into you know, regular ghost stories and different books like that. So uh, tomorrow, I will probably have a best of. I haven't decided yet, or I'll be reading live again. Unless I can uh, kind of bribe Nancy to come on, which is a good possibility. We can talk about some stuff. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I really appreciate it. And I uh, thank you for sticking with me and bearing with me and listening to, this, to these stories. Love doing these stories. Love it, love it, love it. And you know, if there's any kind of if there's any kind of things you would like me to talk about, any kind of guest, you know, any particular guest that you had that, that that you've heard that you would like to hear live on on the show here, 
feel free to email me and contact me. You can contact me through YouTube. You can contact me Facebook and all those other places. And, uh, and I'll try and get them on the air. And if you do pick one that we use, I will send you a T-shirt. We have some really cool California Haunts Radio T-shirts that uh, you guys you guys would probably like. It's got this. Oh, I was going to say that this logo, but the logo's not back there right now. So <laughs> never mind. You'll see it this week when I get this thing down and I got the logo back up there. So, yeah, so I'm more than willing to um, compensate you for it. But anyway, I will see you tomorrow, one way or another, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Uh, we're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And, again, I want to thank you all, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great night.